Good morning. This morning we'll be in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And I will start by reading that. Would you all stand with me for the reading of scripture, please? Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. Uh, If you've been at our church for any amount of time, maybe even a week, you probably come to realize that we have a lot of these um, hobby and interest and enthusiast groups. We form Facebook groups around them, maybe Slack channels, etc. What are some of these that come to mind? I think there's a video gamers group. I know there's a board games group. There might be a linen craftswoman group. Uh, at least one that I know of, anyway. Uh, there might be a hiking group. There may be Um, skiing and snowboarding, pottery, Uh, I know there's a pickleball group for sure, basketball, mechanical keyboard fanatics, uh, spicy food, and in the last couple weeks I wonder if there's even one on the history of the Roman Empire. I was recently asked by, by someone here, how much do you think about the Roman Empire? And I said, never, why? I guess I'm unusual, apparently. Now, I am a part of another group here at church that is a little unusual. It's a small brotherhood. And I'm going to concisely describe it as the dads of three or more girls and no boys group. I know, it's small. It's a privileged group. I'm going to point out a couple differences in how this group functions at least in terms of his membership role, 
versus the rest of these other groups, okay? This group are dads of three or more girls and no boys group. None of us deliberately decide to enter, okay? <clears throat> Pretty sure about that. If, we, if one of you who aren't part of that group want to enter, there's not a whole lot I can suggest for you to do to enter it. If one of us wants to exit, not a whole lot we can do either. But if one day I decide that I love mechanical keyboards, I can probably call, I don't know, John Chung and say, hey, I would love to enter that group. But on the next day, if I commit keyboard heresy and say I like low-profile keyboards, then I can get out. Right? There's a difference between the types of group that you are opting into and opting out of versus the types of groups that you're chosen for. And a few of us men were chosen for the group of dads of three or more girls and no boys. In this passage in Romans 5, we're chosen for a couple of groups. God sovereignly ordained. He allowed. He prepared for two groups of people. On the one hand, Paul says that we are sinners. We didn't necessarily choose to be this way. We are tragically this way. But that's the tragic reality of who we are. We cannot simply choose or decide our way or fix ourselves out of it. On the other hand, there's good news that those of us who have believed in Christ are recipients of grace. And we didn't choose our way into that group either. And thankfully, we cannot choose to separate ourselves from that grace. We're going to have two simple points here from Romans 5. First, we are bound by sin. Second, we have received an impossible gift. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean by impossible when we get to that gift, uh, that, that section. Firstly, we are all bound by sin. From verse 12, Paul tells us clearly that sin comes from Adam. From the time that Adam trespassed against God, he ate that forbidden fruit, he fell into sin. And when he fell into sin, the passage tells us that sin spread through all the world. The fact is, we are all bound by that sin. And what does Paul say the evidence of that sin is? How do we know that sin has entered the world? He says in the passage that the evidence of sin is death. Because we all face death eventually. And all of us face it. The evidence of that sin is death. Now one of the thorny theological issues that comes up whenever we talk about this topic that I feel like we have to get into is when Adam sinned, how then did that sin transmit to the rest of humanity? Okay. Um, that's actually, I think, cover, being covered in Theo 3 right now in Sunday school, but we're going to get into that a little bit. When Adam sinned, how does that sin transmit to the rest of humanity? Why are we all now, as present-day men and women, also sinners because of Adam's individual sin? Basically, why are we guilty for the sin of Adam? Because we could say, he did it, not me. Okay, there are two main responses to this. Two main views. There's a Federalist view and a Seminal view. And briefly, the Federalist view says, when Adam sinned, Adam as a representative head of humanity, so he's the first uh, human, and so he represents the rest of us. When he sinned, as a figurehead for all humanity, God looks at Adam's sin and says, aha, you represent, you're the spokesperson and representative for all of humanity, therefore, 
because of your sin, I'm going to see the rest of you all who descend from Adam as sinners. So as a representative head, the Federalist would say, because of Adam's sin and his representation of you, we're now sinners. I think the weakness of that view is it treats our sin as imputed. Okay? I think Steve uses this in the prayer. Imputed means that by imputation, the sin is assigned to you and me. When looking at Adam, Adam sinned, and because of his sin, the imputation is then that that sin is now assigned to you and me. The weakness of that view is it's difficult for us to say from this passage that the sin is alien to us, right? That the sin was fully assigned to you and me. As if I was in a state of innocence before God decided to look at Adam and say, oh, because your figurehead sinned, then you're a sinner too. The second view is a seminal view, which talks about uh, seminal meaning comes from seed. So when Adam sinned, his genetic makeup and components were corrupted, and therefore his, say, DNA was corrupted, and so he became a sinner within. And of course, all men and women are descended from Adam, and therefore as that uh, descendants come and come and come, and propagate, that sin propagates through the genetic material and makeup. In that view, the sin, you do not become a sinner until you commit your sin, okay? So because you come in predisposed to sin because of your DNA, then you grow up, and the moment you encounter some outside influence that tempts you enough, for example, you become a sinner. There is some weakness in that view as well, right? Because there is a time and a period where at the moment you are born to the time you commit your first sin where you may not be recognized as a sinner. Your genetic material may be sinful, but that view espouses that you do not become a sinner until you commit your first sin. We're going to get to the point of this pretty soon. The best explanation I have read is that God views the entire human race as being under probation. Because if you, read, if you read this passage, verse 12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man, it says clearly that people became sinners through that one man. Also verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It seems to say that at the moment of Adam's sin, you and I all became sinners. Not upon the commission of your first sin in your body, nor by God recognizing that Adam is a federal head over you. The best view that I've, I've read about is a probationary view, where God views in some sense that you and I and all of humanity were in some sense embodied in Adam, and we're all under probation. And Adam's wearing the ankle monitor, and the time at which Adam sinned, when he committed that sin, the reality is that you also sinned, and I also sinned. The passage seems to say there is no period of time at which we can declare our innocence before God. When Adam sinned, we sinned. Why do I go through all that? I think the easiest way out of uh, responsibility for sin is to say someone else did it on my behalf. Some of the common views, the two common views that I described for how sin enters the world and how sin is transmitted 
If Adam was merely a representative on our behalf, we can cry foul, okay? Adam did it on my behalf. If I were in his shoes, he didn't have shoes. If I was in his bare feet, I would not have done that. But the fact is, you did do that. If we take the seminal view, we can say, well, there was a time when I was born in my innocence. And then all the other factors around me colluded to influence me towards that sin. And so then I committed my first sin and I became guilty. But when Romans 5 tells us that when Adam sinned, this wasn't just a forefather that we could scapegoat. Simply put, when Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. And we incurred the guilt of that sin. Sin is a disease that has affected all people for all time. We're corrupted in our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, down to a fundamental level of corruption that's even hard to describe in some sense. Sometimes we don't even understand how corrupted we are all the way through. All of us have wondered why every institution, I bet, has, has something wrong with it, right? We show up to work, and uh, I do this often. I think, why is the workplace so broken? Why are there so much politics, so much drama? Why, why can't people just get along? Every institution that we're a part of has something broken about it. In every realm, even those things for good causes. If someone works for a nonprofit, you probably did that because you thought, this is a good cause. But you also found in the nonprofit world, there's a lot of bad corruption. In academia, some of you are there, you think, our good is to advance the causes of science and engineering. But you also see the plagiarism, the falsification of data, the credit stealing. In finance, you fund businesses, you fund growth, economic growth. And yet you also see the structures that allow for predatory financial practices. In law, you serve the cause of justice, but you also see the structures that people build to stymie that justice. Even in the church, we have our problems. Guess what every institution has in common? Sinners. Me and you. You and me. This week I was talking to my my boss at work about our organization and what's right and wrong about it and certain things that people do wrong. And my boss at work, who is a, a secular person, actually, he had an astute observation. He says, if you put anybody under certain conditions and with enough pressure, they will choose to do what is wrong. I think that's right. Because we are sinners, through and through. Paul raises another question for us, which is, does bring the law in help? We think about law as constraints. We think about law as a guide. We think about law as defining, helping us uh, define what is wrong, right or wrong, uh, helps us to clearly know uh, what God would want us to do and what God would not want us to do. But if you look down in the passage in verse 20, Paul writes, the law came in to increase the trespass. Now how is this possible? Isn't law supposed to constrain our sin? Isn't law supposed to fetter us so that we sin less? Isn't law supposed to inform us 
what we cannot do, and therefore we won't do it. Paul says the law can actually bring greater sin about, because when it's spelled out what is the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do, sinners oftentimes choose the wrong. A couple of years ago, I didn't see this video a couple of years ago, but there was a viral video a couple of years ago where there's a young lady in her New York City apartment, and she <clears throat> um, felt like the apartment was kind of drafty. Okay, it's kind of cold, colder than it ought to be. There's a wind blowing in my apartment, so she decides to investigate. She goes around the apartment, feels around different places um, to see where the draft is coming from. Eventually, she narrows it down to the bathroom. Okay, she, it looks like. I think she's in one of these high-rises, and the bathroom doesn't actually have any windows, okay? Uh, Also, the only door is the one leading from the rest of the apartment into the bathroom, so why is there a draft coming from the bathroom? So she starts feeling around, putting her hand in different places, and and feels a gust coming from, of all places, the bathroom mirror. She decides to investigate. She pulls the mirror back a little bit and finds, oh, there's a crack back there. There's an empty space. She pulls it back a little bit farther and finds that there is a big empty space behind there. She pulls it back even farther and then peeks in and looks and finds not only is there a big empty space behind there, there is a massive empty space behind there. In fact, inside the bathroom mirror, down below her bathroom mirror, is an entire other apartment. New York City high-rise. So then at this point, being a TikToker, she looks at the iPhone camera and says something like, should I go in there? <laughs> and he, of course you're thinking, that's crazy. Right? That's the creepiest thing I've ever seen. What you should do is you should bolt that mirror back on and forget about the whole thing. Right? It wouldn't have been a viral video if she didn't get in there. Right? So she, she gets in there, You can look it up later if you want to. The point is, when we see the do not enter sign, when we see as sinners the idea that we shouldn't do something, sometimes it awakens this desire to do something. The law increases trespass, is what Paul says. This is the condition of the human heart bound to sin. When the law points out a constraint to us and tells us there's something we shouldn't do, that often further awakens and entices sin. And so Paul says that the law increased the trespass. You say, wait. Okay, one more caveat. Doesn't sin not count when there's no law? So the point of the law was that there could be a record of sin, right? So when the law comes in, then there's a record of sin, then the sin should start counting, but when there's no law written down, shouldn't the sin not count? Paul addresses that too. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no law. He does say not counted. But he does repeat. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So even though he's saying that the law is not there for us to tally the one sin that you committed against this law, the second sin that you committed against that law. Nevertheless, the reality of sin was in the world. And we know that. 
because everybody from Adam and on has died. Death was in the world already, even before Moses brought the tablets and read the law to Israel. The law didn't need, there, uh, need to be there for sin to be sin. From the moment that Adam sinned and transgressed against God's law, you sinned and I sinned. And sin has always been present from that time on. And we're all bound to it. But secondly, the good news. We received the impossible gift. Okay, okay I know when I make a point like that, I've got to put an asterisk on it. We receive the impossible gift. Those of us who have believed in and have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior have re- received the impossible gift. If you have not, if you have not believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, those of us who have, we would want you to believe in him, okay? There's an aspect here that this gift, um, this gift is like the like the, the transgression of Adam, in that Paul says, just as sin came through one man, Adam, so grace came through one man, Jesus Christ. A free gift was bestowed to us. You can look at verses 15, 16, 17. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through one man, Adam, sin came into the world. Through another man, Jesus, grace, righteousness, and life came into the world. Verse 19 tells us also clearly that Adam's disobedience made us sinners. Christ's obedience then makes us righteous. There are also differences, though. If you look at verse 15, verse 15 starts with, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So on the one hand, we're all made uh, righteous in some way, the same, in some manner, uh, same way, the same manner as which we were made sinners. That through one man sin entered the world, through another grace and righteousness and life entered the world. But there are also differences because the free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 15 says. I'm going to point out a sub, uh, several subpoints here, okay? The impossible gift. Why is this impossible? I say that because God gives us a gift that would be impossible for us to conceive, impossible for any of us to act in the same way as God, impossible for any of us to have the capability, the desire, the willingness, and the power to give such a gift. Firstly, God is impossibly gracious. Uh, These verses were read earlier, but we'll reference back to chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, which say that Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God is impossibly gracious. As part of our church, on Facebook, we also have an RBF marketplace. And I'll uh, take the bold step and say, most of us, when we post on that RBF marketplace, something to offer, 
we post things of pretty low value. Okay. <clears throat> What's the best thing you've ever seen on that marketplace? Maybe a lightly used sweater from a decent brand. Uh, maybe a pair of shoes that no longer fit or hurt my feet. Have you ever seen someone post something like, hey guys, I'm just putting this out there. I have a relatively lightly used, pretty much new Tesla Model 3. <laughs> I just wanted to see if anyone out there could use it. So uh, let me know in the comments. Okay. <clears throat> could you imagine the craziness that would ensue? You would have one party that's like, I claimed it via the comments they claimed it via the DMs. You said comment, I should get that Tesla. The DM person says, well, I didn't want to publicly claim this thing, so I, but if you look at the timestamps, I claimed that before the person who commented. We probably have to have a drawing, a raffle, okay? And then after the raffle, there will be claims of raffle fraud, <laughs> right? People will question the motives of the person who posted this Tesla. What's this person trying to do? Show off? Gain some kind of favor from people in the church? The person who posted the offer would probably think after the raffle was over, ah, I wish it didn't go to that person. I wish it would have gone to my closer friend who um, is more in need. And I don't particularly like that person. Think about the craziness that would ensue for that car. Now, even if someone really offered that, which no, none of us would, you'd want it to go to your best friend. And yet, here God goes. He shows his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God's like, I love you, even while you're being despicable. Even while I should be angry with you because of all the things you do. Even while I should be deeply frustrated with you. Not a car. I'm going to give you my child, my son, to die for your sins and to pay the price for all that you've done. While I'm mad at you. While I should be. Seeing you as a sinner. That kind of graciousness is impossible with human beings. I mean, we can hardly do that with a new Patagonia jacket, right? <clears throat> my jar of chili crisp, I wouldn't do that. Give it to someone I don't like? Why would I give my, well, I got my chili crisp to someone I don't like. God gives his son to you while you're a sinner. God also brings this impossible level of righteousness to the situation, okay? Paul uses the words justification and righteousness together in this passage. He says that we're justified by Christ, which means that even though we're all sinners, bound to sin, guilty, God looks at Jesus' payment on the cross and sees that as sufficient payment and atonement to pay the price for you and for me. He looks at Jesus on the cross and says that's sufficient payment to declare all of us righteous. Recently I went at home, I took a, a play money, uh, $5 bill out of my kid's play cash register. It's made out of felt, okay? I said, uh, Katie, Caroline, how about 
I take this $5 bill, and you give me one of your U.S. currency $5 bills. They said, no. I asked them why. Why not? They say, well, because it's not real. And I say, well, I launch into my dad explanation. The only reason you're saying it's real is because the U.S. government printed it. Okay? And then the U.S. government has convinced you and me and all of us, and the rest of the world, really, that that's legitimate money and has value. Okay? I see the crypto bros going like, yeah. Um, That's legitimate money. Now, Katie, Caroline, if I stand before you and say, this play $5 bill from your cash register, dad is declaring this legitimate money in our household. Okay? Now, will you go take your U.S. currency $5 bill and exchange it for mine? And they said, no. (laughs) Even the child recognizes that nobody has the power and the authority to say something is something when it's really not. Except that God does. You are not righteous. I'm not righteous. I am a righteousness imposter. But God looks at Christ and says, now I declare you to be righteous. Why is this impossible? Remember, sin is inherent to who we are. Sin is not some kind of illegal immigrant coming into our beings and invading us. Sin is original. It's native to us. The righteousness is the illegal immigrant. The the righteousness is that which God has to declare upon us and put upon us and impute to us. The reality is in our corruption, God has to look at us and say, by nature, I don't see you as a righteous person. But because of Christ, I'm going to declare you righteous. All of us by nature are fake currency. But God declares us to be real and righteous. And what was alien to us is now who we are. And thirdly, as part of this impossible gift, God gives an impossibly abundant gift. You see in the passage, Paul uses words like much more a few times. Much more. The grace is much more than the sin that was in the world. Where the sin was, grace abounded much more. The sin is a lot, but the grace is much more. The mess that was made here by sin is a lot, but the abundance of grace is much more. It's far easier to create a mess than it is to clean one up, right? Just ask the kids in our church. It's much harder to stop the spread of an infection than it is to start one. A few years ago, everyone probably has a where were you uh, experience like this. Irene and I were going to bed in March of 2020. And the next week, we were told that we had to shelter in place for a while. Didn't know how long. Because this little virus was coming from Wuhan, China and starting to spread throughout the world. And so as we're lying there, uh, <clears throat> going to bed, Irene asks me, how long do you think it's going to be before life returns back to normal? Um, and me, I guess I'm more the optimist. I said, four weeks max. <laughs> and in a few years, 
We won't even remember this time. Um, she'll, she'll want to note for this, this record that she said, we're going to remember this for the rest of our lives. <clears throat> now, at the time, for me, the problem felt literally an ocean away. Turns out, of course, that the kind of efforts, the cleanup, the stop of that infection spread, the, the kinds of ways in which those efforts would upend all of our daily lives, the ways in which that would upend our, our cultural and society norms, is something that none of us will ever forget. Because the cleanup of the infection was far greater, far more difficult than the spread of that infection. The worldwide effort to limit COVID was crazy in scope. But even that, I think that illustration still falls short of what God's abundance did in his gift of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus did come in to stop an infection. He did. Okay? He, came, he came here to stop the spread of sin. He came to, to stop that infection. But he came to do more than that. He came to provide a cure. He came to heal people of sin. He came to reverse his trajectory. He came not only to declare and proclaim you righteous, not only to look at Christ and say, okay, now I declare you and, you and me righteous, but he came in also to make you righteous. To work on human hearts so that we will actually change from the inside out. Paul writes in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, in our world, it is possible to put something to death. It is impossible to bring something back to life. But that's what God's trying to do. That's what God did. God's grace is so much more abundant and greater than sin and death. He shares that abundance to undeserving sinners, declaring you righteous, making you righteous, preparing you for a life fit to live together with him in eternity, in holiness. So that finally, even with all the inherent ugliness of who I am and who you are, God wants to fix it up and have us live together with him in his house. That is the impossible gift that God gives to everyone who believes in Jesus. In all of the good things that we have, we really have a hard time sharing with anybody, right? Let alone people that we dislike. Let alone people who offend us. But this holy God holds out an impossibly good gift to us. An offer for any one of us to take. For those who would believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you will believe in him, God will declare you righteous, God will make you righteous, and God will bring you home to him. And thank God that you can't opt out. You can never lose that gift. You can't hand it back. And no one can take it from you. I just want to read a snippet from the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, for, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite Adam's sin and our sin, you love us and gave us, gave us Jesus so that we might be made righteous and spend eternity with you. Let us never take such a gift for granted. May understanding your love for us bring us to greater worship and gratitude and desire to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.